This is the One Soldier Canada History Podcast, Episode 7. Sir Isaac Brock vs. Robert E. Lee. If I were to give you a piece of paper and a pencil and then tell you to make a list of the best military commanders throughout history, who would be on it? Names like Alexander and Napoleon would probably be at the top. And I'm sure that Caesar would make an appearance at some point, and probably uh, maybe Wellington and Genghis Khan. And if I were to narrow the criteria on that list to the greatest American generals of all time, well, that list would still be quite exhaustive as well. Because we could start all the way back at George Washington in the American Revolution and then work our way up throughout history with the likes of Grant and Stonewall Jackson, and Custer, and Patton, and MacArthur. Okay, so now with that same pencil and paper, can you make a list of the greatest Canadian generals of all time? Who's at the top? Can you think of just one name to put on that list? It's a little bit harder, isn't it? And you can probably see the point I'm about to make. We do an abysmal job of promoting and, more importantly, teaching about our military heroes in this country. And it's not because Canada hasn't been in many wars in the past or that there's not heroic historical figures. It's that we don't teach it. But there is possibly maybe one exception to this black hole of collective historical knowledge that we Canadians share. And that is General Sir Isaac Brock. Finally, here's a man who has penetrated that collective consciousness in maybe just a small way. Kids are still taught about him in school. Hopefully that is. And the general public would probably recognize the name. And I think one of the reasons that General Brock has sort of captured the historical collective knowledge of this country is that he's just so quintessentially Canadian. He looks the part. In typical Canadian fashion, he loved to follow the rules, whatever they were. He was, by all accounts, very tall and handsome. He was named the savior of Upper Canada for his brilliant defense of the colony in 1812, when faced against numerically superior enemy forces. And more importantly, he was fighting those evil Americans who we just love to look down our noses at in this country. And he built alliances with the native people of the region. And so he checks off all these boxes in the official Canadian narrative, which is probably one of the reasons why he has survived in the textbooks, as long as he has. Now, forget for a moment that Brock wasn't actually Canadian, because in 1812, there, of course, was no Canada. But we have sort of adopted him as one of our own. For Brock was actually born in Britain, actually in one of the the Channel Islands between Britain and France. And he fought for the British Army. But in the year 2020, you can illegally cross the Canadian border and within three years have citizenship. Brock spent over a decade of service in Canada and he died here defending Canada. So I think he's probably Canadian enough. And at the time, there was really no Canadian identity anyway. If you were English in Canada, then you considered yourself to be British. So this is just a lot of semantics. But the question is, How great a general was Sir Isaac Brock? How does he stack up against the great military commanders that you wrote about on your list or that you thought about? 
Because if we're going to be objective about things, we have to recognize that the campaign that Brock so famously won at Detroit, which made him famous, was against perhaps the most incompetent American general of all time, William Hall. And the next great victory at Queenston Heights, which proved to be Brock's last battle, was against a guy named Van Rensselaer, who was a political appointment with no experience, and he proved to be subpar and never took the field again. Now, the last thing I want to do is tear down a, a man, a hero's reputation, and that's not the point of this at all. Brock was clearly skilled in war, and we do enough tearing down of our past heroes anyway, either through historical revisionism, renaming buildings, and literally tearing down statues to appease modern-day sensibilities. Just look at what's happened to poor old Sir John A. Macdonald's reputation in the past few years. But to truly appreciate Brock, or any general for that matter, we've got to test him against a worthy opponent. And that's what we're going to do today. Now, there's no comparing 19th century Brock to the likes of a Patton. The golf and technology is simply incompatible. Because if, if we would think about it, a platoon of American GIs winding their way through France in 1944 could probably have enough firepower to utterly dominate the entirety of Brock's forces on the field of battle. But what if we were to compare Brock to somebody a bit more contemporary to his time? Could Brock have beaten a Napoleon? Or a Grant? Could Brock have beaten Robert E. Lee, arguably the best and certainly most beloved American general of all time, in a fair fight? That's the question we're going to ask. Because if you can beat Lee, or at least hold your own against him in battle, then you've definitely earned a spot on the list of greatest generals of all time. And so, with that being said, our journey takes us back to October 13th, 1812. The battle between Sir Isaac Brock and General Lee would start off strangely enough because in the early hours of October 13, 1812, Brock's going to be awakened in his quarters at Niagara by the sounds of battle, cannons firing across the Niagara River a few miles distant. That part's not unexpected. Brock's been anticipating an American move across the river separating Upper Canada from New York State for some time now. And the previous day, he even sent out orders to call out the local militia to help bolster his forces. But what is going to be surprising in our alternative timeline is that Brock's scouts and spies operating on the frontier have been reporting over the last few days and weeks that the enemy force gathering on the opposite shore are wearing these strange gray uniforms that are mismatched with straw hats and farm clothes. Some of the opposing soldiers are even missing proper footwear, and it makes for a ragged, hungry appearance. Not only are the shabby uniforms out of place, but the flags... They're these weird blue diagonal crosses with stars on a red background. It's something never seen before. And spies are also going to report the soldiers across the river have southern accents, which is certainly an anomaly in New York. And when you put all these pieces together, Brock may very well assume that the army facing him is a collection of militia units hailing from Kentucky or, or some state in that region. Probably Kentucky, though, because it provided an astounding number of soldiers in the War of 1812, 
and accounted for over half the American casualties in that war. If you're General Brock in the lead up to this battle, you've got to be pretty confident and a little thankful that you're not fighting American regulars and for obvious reasons. The militia, they're undisciplined and they're known to disobey orders. It's probably important to note at this point that Brock's own opinion of the militia is one of complete and utter disdain. Even the militia which Brock commands are looked down upon. He doesn't trust them at all, and he suspects a great many of them to be disloyal to the crown and sympathetic to America. Which sort of makes sense, because most of these farmers and inhabitants of Upper Canada which Brock is going to use in his militia, were in fact recently immigrated from America. And so their loyalty is definitely suspect. And so as Brock is wakened on the morning of October 13, 1812, he's going to ride towards the firing at Queenston Heights, half expecting and maybe even hoping to meet American militia. And he's got to hurry because the British on the Niagara frontier, and indeed all of Upper Canada, are stretched thin. There's a massive war in Europe happening against Napoleon, which is going to suck in the bulk of Britain's manpower and resources. Canada gets the scraps. Guarding the heights of Queenston in the historical timeline is the Grenadier and the Light Companies of the 49th Infantry. There's also a flank company of the York Militia, and a detachment of the 41st Regiment and a few hundred Mohawk warriors. All in, Brock was able to assemble a mixed force of 900 regulars, militia, and native warriors. However, this isn't going to be enough. There were about 3,500 American soldiers poised to invade Canada at Queenston. And in the hands of Robert E. Lee, Brock is going to be overwhelmed and destroyed by such a force. He's not going to stand a chance. If we're gaming out who the best general is between General Brock and General Robert E. Lee, We've got to even things out. We've got to make the numbers a little bit more fair. In 1812, there were about 4,000 British regulars strung out and garrisoned along the entire length of Upper Canada. And in our alternative timeline, at the Battle of Queenston, Sir Isaac Brock is going to assemble these isolated elements into a unified command on the Niagara frontier in preparation for a decisive battle. By the time October 1812 rolls around, Brock is going to take the field with 4,000 British regulars, 600 militia, 300 Mohawk warriors for a combined strength of approximately 5,000 men. He's also going to have a regiment of the 19th Dragoons. This concentration of forces does carry some historical legitimacy. After the victory at Detroit, Brock in fact did want to mass the isolated British forces in the colony at Niagara in order to launch a preemptive strike into America and dismantled the American army that was assembling under Van Rensselaer. His superiors, however, were a little bit more cautious and they ordered Brock to abandon this plan in favor of taking a defensive posture behind the Niagara River. So in our Brock vs. Lee timeline, Brock has managed to assemble what is a sizable force by the War of 1812 standards. 5,000 soldiers, from Brock's perspective, is a huge number. There was never 5,000 British troops gathered in one spot in one time in Canada during the entire War of 1812. The closest we would ever get to such a force was about 3,500 British troops at Lundy's Lane in 1814. And Brock 
well, he may be somewhat overwhelmed by such numbers. But across the Niagara River, it's a different story. The first thing that General Lee is probably going to notice is just how small the armies in 1812 are compared to the American Civil War. Because we're going to give General Lee an equal force of 5,000 soldiers from the Army of Northern Virginia. And he's definitely going to have the opposite reaction that Brock does. 5,000 soldiers to Lee is almost inconsequential. Here's a man who's used to campaigning with 70, 80,000 soldiers. 5,000 soldiers to Lee, well, those are the two brigades that you detach from the main army and send off on some foraging mission or reconnaissance mission. It's the two brigades you garrison at Harper's Ferry as you move the rest of your army north of the Potomac. It's a sideshow. Except there is one memory of commanding such a relatively small force that might cause Lee some discomfort. In 1861, Lee was tasked with driving federal forces out of the rolling hills and mountains of West Virginia. And to do this, he had a similar sized force of what we're going to give him in 1812. And he didn't do so well. Lee's brilliance as a general was his ability to identify highly competent subordinates like Jackson and Longstreet whom he could trust to carry out complex maneuvers. Unfortunately for Lee's West Virginia campaign, he didn't have commanders of that caliber. His tactics were highly intricate and complex, relying on many moving parts that had to maneuver with precision and be at certain places at specific times. And if just one piece of that puzzle failed, then the entire house of cards would come down. And that's exactly what happened to Lee in West Virginia. He failed and the Federals took that state. And in the aftermath, Lee, or Granny Lee as he was called, was tasked with supervising coastal defenses in Virginia, which by contrast was a very unglamorous job and a clear demotion. Now Lee did recover, but his command of small armies, by his standards, is worth noting as we go forward. But aside from the armies being much smaller than what he's used to, Lee is also going to realize that the 50 years of technological development that separates his troops from Brock's forces, well, it doesn't translate into much of an advantage at all. During the Civil War, there was a spike in firearms development, including the introduction of the Gatling gun and repeating rifles, which drastically increased firepower. However, these deluxe weapons of war were primarily in the hands of Union forces, given the expense to procure them. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia had to make do with the 1853 Enfield rifled musket, one of the most popular guns used in the Civil War, and the weapon which his forces on the Niagara frontier will primarily be equipped with. This rifled musket has a 200-yard default range with adjustable sights up to 900 meters. A good soldier can fire this weapon four times a minute. Across the Niagara, Brock's redcoats are carrying the standard-issue brown bass. This was the workhorse of the British infantry. It's a musket with a 100-yard effective range and a 300-yard area range. In other words, a capable soldier should be able to hit a singular target at 100 yards, and at 300 yards, the brown bass can hit a mass of infantry, and it has a rate of fire of about three rounds a minute. So if we're going to compare the firepower of the two armies, well, we've got to give Lee's army a bit of an edge. Although, maybe it's not as much as you would expect 50 years of development to be. Now, the first big obstacle facing Lee is how to physically get at Brock. Because the British general is under orders to take a defensive position on the Canadian side of the Niagara River. 
so it's going to be up to Lee to assume an aggressive posture, which kind of suits his leadership style anyway. True, Lee was adept at fighting on the defensive when the situation dictated, and we can just look to Fredericksburg or his prolonged defense of Richmond and Petersburg as an example of this. But defense is never his first choice. Whenever Lee had the chance, he attacked the enemy with aggression. Even in those years of retreat from the wilderness in the spring of 1864 to the trenches outside Richmond, Lee was always looking for that opening to regain the initiative despite being faced with overwhelming manpower. In 1812, the only way for Lee to get at Brock is to take his army across the Niagara River. It's a big river, but not a big enough obstacle to hold the Virginian back. He's got plenty of experience getting his army of Northern Virginia across other major waterways like the Potomac during the Antietam and Gettysburg campaigns. But it does take planning. In 1812, American General Van Rensselaer, he brought his American army across the river to the base of Queenston Heights in successive waves using large ore boats. Lee, however, is going to employ a different approach. If we look at Lee's historical maneuvers getting across the Potomac River, what he usually did was he would split his army into different wings and cross major rivers at a couple different points. The reason for this was strategic as well as logistical. By crossing at several different points, Lee's army could forage multiple areas for supplies and also keep his opponents guessing about what his true intentions and what his true objectives were. Now we're going to go back to the battle. It's still dark in the early morning when Brock arrives at Queenston. And remember, he's going to believe that he's up against a ragtag American militia army. When he arrives at the heights overlooking the steep, forested gorge leading down to the river, he's going to realize and see that an enemy beachhead has already been established. There are hundreds of enemy soldiers with their gray uniforms and their red flags taking shelter along the bank with more troops being ferried across by boat. Fortunately for Brock, there is a redan at the top of the heights, a type of earthen fortification where he has a battery of cannons and a few companies of redcoats. Brock is going to waste little time in directing his infantry to fire at the enemy landing, and his cannons are going to target the boats on the water. In the historical timeline, Brock wasn't quite sure if the American landing at Queenston was a feint meant to cover a larger invasion force, and in our scenario, as Brock looks to his surroundings, his suspicions are realized. Because in the distance, he can see this odd structure spanning the Niagara River a few miles north of the village of Queenston. It's a pontoon bridge, a giant floating causeway, and in the morning light, Brock can see thousands of enemy soldiers with their cannons streaming across it. Brock has never seen such a thing before. Lee has divided his army and crossed into Canada at two points about five miles apart. To make matters worse for Brock, it's by now become clear that the enemy force below the heights is no mere militia. Although Brock's defenders in the Redan are pouring volley fire into the landing craft and the beachhead, the enemy isn't wavering as you would expect militia to do, and the accuracy of their incoming fire from a line of skirmishers in the trees is beginning to tell. Already, Brock can begin to see formations of men and companies beginning to take their positions for an advance up the gorge. This is when the real fighting begins, and Brock has to make a decision as he awaits reinforcements from Fort George and Niagara and elsewhere. Does he concentrate on defeating the enemy at the base of the heights, or does he throw the weight of his army at the slightly larger force crossing the pontoon bridges? 
Both will carry risk. Engaging the smaller force, this feint at the base of the cliffs offers the best chance of immediate success. There's about 1,500 men in grey down in the gorge, and if Brock concentrates, well, you might be able to trap them against the river and utterly destroy this wing of Lee's army. But that will leave your flank exposed to the larger force, which is still coming over on the pontoons. Not only that, but if the enemy turns north, you leave Fort George exposed and possibly even your capital at York. What would you do? The benefit of being an armchair general and thinking about this in the year 2020 is that we know a little something about Lee and the Confederate Army. Brock doesn't. In the end, though, nearby couriers watch Brock default to his aggressive nature, his factory setting, when he decides to strike at the enemy directly to his front. Riders are sent to the disparate commands across the Niagara frontier to hurry with haste to Queenston. Brock decides he can't leave Fort George and the capital undefended. Brock pencils orders for his commanders to unify their forces on the Niagara frontier just north of Queenston Village. Unifying the army will take a couple hours, however, and in the meantime, the enemy is coming up the gorge aiming for the Redan with its battery of guns. The Grenadiers and the flank company, they've been pouring a murderous fire into the enemy, but the Red Banners, they're creeping closer through the smoke field and broken ground. And Brock can't hold the heights or the Redan with what he's got, but he's also got to buy some time for his reinforcements to concentrate. He orders the men to hold their ground and the heavy guns to keep firing. The initial enemy charge now breaks through the rocky tree line and for the first time Brock hears the chilling rebel yell of the Confederates. It sends a chill up his spine and the primal savagery of the call gives him pause that this is what the Americans in Fort Detroit must have felt when Tecumseh's warriors paraded just outside musket range of the fort. Suddenly General Hall doesn't seem such a coward for surrendering the fort without firing a shot. When the enemy's lead soldiers break through the smoke of the last volley, they are bayoneted by the grenadiers as they attempt to storm the Redan. If you're the caddy to Brock in this moment, you can see those elongated triangular blades flashing in the morning light, thrusting red, slicing through human meat. The cold steel is specifically designed so that if you get stabbed, it's essentially a death sentence because the triangular incision is almost impossible to sew up. And even if the surgeon can close the wound, which is doubtful, the internal damage means you're probably just going to bleed out on the inside anyway. In this close-range fighting, there are no orders, there's no commands, there's just shouting and screams of triumph and death. The Grenadiers have been specifically trained for this kind of fighting, and they've certainly got the edge when it comes to the bayonet. They're carving sick cavities into the chests of screaming Confederates as they try to extract bayonets lodged between ribs. And fortunately for Brock, the enemy charge, it's a little haphazard and premature. It's the result of a junior officer wanting glory before the main attack was ready. And after a few minutes, the enemy retires back to the gorge to regroup. The previous minutes were but a precursor for what's to come. If you're with Brock, you know that they will be back soon enough and you're probably not going to be able to hold them again. But in the meantime, in this brief lull in the fighting... Some enemy combatants have been taken prisoner in the attack upon the Redan. Some are with ghastly wounds, while others have been scalped and mutilated by John Norton's Mohawks, who have just arrived on the scene. The Mohawks, of course, they don't abide by the same rules of warfare, and Brock is able to call off the massacre before all the prisoners are killed. And from these terrified survivors, 
Brock is able to gather all kinds of intelligence. These men call themselves Confederates, or Southerners, and they claim they are from the Stonewall Brigade, about 1,500 men strong, part of the Army of Northern Virginia, and their general is this man named Lee, with the main body crossing on the pontoon bridge a few miles distant. And of course, these names mean nothing to Brock. He's never heard of them before. From the gorge, these strange men, these Confederates, as they call themselves from the Stonewall Brigade, well, Brock can now hear them reforming their lines for another push. And his reinforcements from Niagara and Fort George, they haven't arrived yet. And so the enemy has the numbers to overwhelm the heights. In desperation, Brock is going to call upon Norton's Mohawks to slow down the enemy advance. And they are fresh, and their blood is up from the scalp dance. And they take off into the trees and the gorge numbering 300 strong. Their war cries fill the air. This is the type of fighting in the trees using cover of broken ground that they're made for. And their tomahawks strike terror into the advancing Confederate lines. Most of these Southerners, they've never seen an Indian before. But they remember their grandparents' stories about the savages when they see these fighters in war paint slipping behind boulders and trees. And fear grips the line. The advance stumbles and slowly they start taking casualties. More men are scalped and their screams fill the gorge. The Indian attack is most successful in these first moments, and it allows Brock to begin carrying some of his heavy guns away to safety and spiking the rest. Inevitably, though, the weight of Confederate numbers prevails, and the Stonewall Brigade is able to regain its footing from the Indian onslaught, and then all 1,500 men, they continue moving up, forward, toward the Redan, where the Grenadiers and the Flank Company make their final stand. When the Stonewall Brigade emerges from the gorge, these redcoats are simply overwhelmed, and the two companies, they evaporate under sustained fire. The militia detachment, they fire a ragged volley, and then they run, along with the Mohawk who aren't used to exchanging volley fire with disciplined soldiers. And the remnants of the Redan garrison, well, they drag Brock from the field. This early morning encounter is costly for both sides. The Grenadiers and the Flank Company are virtually destroyed. Out of an initial force of 200 men, a scant 30 remain for active duty. And Norton's Mohawks, they also suffer heavily in the gorge, leaving 50 of their dead behind. Another 30 militia are unaccounted for, and probably dead, or as Brock presumes, maybe deserted from the fight. Unfortunately for the Confederates, in the era of muskets and gunpowder, the attacker almost always takes a bigger hit. And so Jackson's Stonewall Brigade lost 350 men to a combination of Mohawk tomahawks and British volleys and boats being blown out of the water. So far, Brock has the edge in the body count, but he's lost the high ground. When Brock's reinforcements do arrive at Queenston Village from Niagara and Fort George about noon on October 13th, they find an exhausted Brock and the survivors of his initial force. The discipline of the Confederates has clearly taken Brock by surprise, and through his field glasses, he and his British officers, they can hear and see Stonewall Jackson's brigade using this time to entrench their position on the heights and strengthen the Redan. Brock can even hear their axes at work, chopping down trees to create breastworks and an abatis. Complicating matters for Brock is that Lee's other wing has by now crossed the pontoon bridge and is making its way south towards the field of battle. If Brock isn't careful, he's going to be trapped in a classic Lee flanking maneuver. Now at this stage of the battle, 
Brock, he's going to have three choices. He can move his now consolidated army to face the northern wing of Lee's invasion force. He can renew the push against the weakened Stonewall Brigade on the Queenston Heights in order to regain the high ground. Or he can retreat. Brock has never shown an inclination to withdraw or retreat, so that's not an option. Instead, after a council of war with his senior officers, Brock is going to do what he did in the real historical timeline, and he's going to try to take back the heights before the two Confederate wings can combine their forces. Going back to Lee's force. From 1864 to 1865, Lee's Army of Northern Virginia proved adept at fighting behind defensive breastworks and trenches, holding off vastly superior numbers of federal forces while inflicting mass casualties. In one such battle at Cold Harbor, Lee's soldiers inflicted 7,000 casualties on Union forces within minutes. And they did this from behind elaborate zigzagging breastworks and trenches with relatively little loss of life of their own. Yet Brock would have no way of knowing this. In our battle, Brock deploys a battalion of reserves to fortify the village of Queenston with the goal of skirmishing and slowing down the advance of Lee's northern wing while he concentrates the bulk of his infantry forces for a frontal assault back up the heights. However, Brock also has a regiment of cavalry, the 19th Dragoons, which he detaches with orders to slow down and harass Lee's northern wing as well. These Dragoons, they know the land, and they spot a company of Confederates isolated from the main body. Maybe they are foraging, or perhaps scouting alternative routes. Nevertheless, they are marching in a long line exposed in open ground, and it's exactly the dream of every cavalryman to find a target just like this. When the 19th rides in, it's a slaughter. Half the company makes it to a nearby tree line, while the others are cut to pieces by the blades of the British horse. In the Civil War, cavalry mostly acted as scouts and fought as dismounted infantry. There was virtually no instances of cavalry riding headlong into bodies of infantry. Nor were there many cases of infantry forming protective squares to fight off a cavalry charge. The presence of dragoons is something new to Lee's forces, and they're going to pay the price. As the dragoons mop up the Confederate infantry company, Lee's regiment of cavalry is finally going to appear on the field led by Jeb Stuart. Now this is a matchup that makes you wonder. Who would win? British Dragoons on the battlefield or Southern Horsemen? As mentioned before, the Southern Cavalry are used to fighting as dismounted infantry, yet there were instances of cavalry battles where soldiers remained mounted. To defeat the Dragoons, Jeb Stuart's men will have to fight in this fashion. And after an initial volley from pistols and carbines, it's the work of swords and sabers. This cavalry engagement is pitting the best horsemen in the world against each other. In the Civil War, Confederate cavalry toyed with their Union counterparts for much of the war in both the Eastern and the Western theaters, with daring commanders such as Stuart and Nathan Bedford Forrest and Morgan. And yet, the British horsemen were regarded as the best in Europe of their time. Here's what a private in the British 95th Rifles witnessed at Waterloo. And he said this, A hussar and a cuirassier had got entangled in the melee, and met in the plain in full view of our line. The hussar was attacking without cap and bleeding from a wound in his head, but that did not hinder him from attacking his steel-clad adversary. 
he soon proved that the strength of cavalry contains in good swordsmanship and not in being clad in defensive armor. After a few blows, a tremendous fencer made the Frenchman reel in the saddle. A second blow stretched him on the ground amidst the cheers of the horseman's comrades, who were ardent spectators in the combat. Back to our battle. A lieutenant serving as Brock's aide had this to say about the clash between the British dragoons and the Southern Cavaliers. And he said this, the English and the Southern Cavalry met in the most gallant manner and with the greatest show of resolution. The first shock when they came in collision seemed terrific, and many men and horses fell on both sides. They had ridden through and past each other, and now they wheeled round again. This was followed by a second charge, accompanied by some very pretty saber practice, by which many saddles were emptied, and the English and Southern chargers were soon galloping about the field without riders. After 20 minutes of fierce back-and-forth fighting, Jeb Stewart's cavalry retires from the field, battered but in decent order to await the arrival of infantry support. When it comes to the effectiveness of their respective cavalry forces, I'm going to give the edge to Brock on this one. And during this cavalry duel, which is more or less an undercard to the main event, Brock prepares his infantry to assault the heights and retake the Redan, which he lost earlier in the morning. He arrays his redcoats in typical British formation, lines two files deep. He places his militia units and Norton's remaining Mohawks on the flanks, and with the fife and drums they march smartly towards the heights. And for Jackson's men, it's a lot like Cold Harbor, or even Fredericksburg, as they look down the heights towards the advancing force. Both of those battles saw Confederate forces mow down Union troops advancing on the entrenchments. In 1815, at the Battle of New Orleans, a British army advancing upon American fortifications through open ground suffered 2,500 casualties, compared to less than 100 for the defending American forces. This is what Brock is unknowingly walking into, as he and his men, almost 4,000 of them, step out of the cluster of homes which is the village of Queenston at just about 1 o'clock on October 13th. They immediately come under fire from a battery of Confederate artillery atop the heights. A Confederate cannoneer remembered this. Our guns were 12-pound brass Napoleons, smooth bore, but accounted the best gun for all round field service then made. They fired solid shot, shell, grape, and canister, and were accurate at a mile. We would not have exchanged them for parrot rifles or any other style of gun. They were beautiful, perfectly plain, tapering gracefully from muzzle to reinforce or butt, without rings or ornaments of any kind. We were proud of them and felt towards them almost as if they were human. Back to the battle. This gunner and his comrades are immediately struck by the British target in front of them. That long red line. At one mile they open up, searching for the correct range, and yet the British move on. At 300 yards, Brock's soldiers begin to feel the sting of Lee's infantrymen, shouldering their 1853 Lee-Enfield muskets, which, ironically, are imported from Britain. Brock is going to be surprised by the range of the Confederate muskets, and his men begin to go down, the tempo increasing the closer they get to the base of the heights. At 200 yards, the carnage becomes insurmountable. 
Just like at Fredericksburg, the Confederate defenders placed their best shots in the forward positions of the entrenchments, while the other men reload and pass the charged muskets to the front in a conveyor-like train of efficiency. The ferocity of the Confederate gunfire compels the British to temporarily abandon the advance and fall back to Queenston. By this time, Lee's northern wing has engaged the reserve battalion Brock has left behind, and they conduct a fighting withdrawal to the outskirts of the village with the help of the dragoons. Brock's going to know that it's now do-or-die time for his army. If they fail to dislodge the enemy from the heights, then they're going to be caught in a pincer-like movement. Just like in the historical timeline, Brock is going to rally his forces again and make another attempt at the heights. Now they know what they are getting into, and the stakes of retreat will be catastrophic. And of course, knowing Brock, he's going to lead from the front. And he's hopeful because the enemy brigade to his front, the Stonewall Brigade, well, they've been fighting since before sunrise. It's a smaller force, and they've been taking casualties too. They must be tired. And besides, going back to the American Revolution and, and even the wars in Europe, Brock knows that rarely can an enemy stand up to a British bayonet charge. It's the training and discipline that feeds this shock tactic which is irresistible and almost never fails. The Mohawks lead the way and take off at a run for the base of the hill and the trees and they rush the Stonewall Brigade's right flank where hand-to-hand combat ensues. Bayonets and rifle butts against knives and tomahawks and the Confederate right begins to bend under this pressure. Brock's redcoats maintain order and march like clockwork to the foe. Once again, the Confederate artillery opens up, and this time they've gotten the range, and they blow holes in the ranks. Then it's the turn of the muskets to add to the death toll, and yet the redcoat discipline is inexorable. They reach the base of the heights, and this time, instead of caving under the withering fire, they press on, absorbing the many balls punching holes in the ranks. At under 100 yards, Brock finally can punch back and his lines unleash their own volley. For a time, both sides begin pounding the other with musketry, and the bodies, it, they begin to pile up. I think it's at this moment that Brock is going to steal a look over his shoulder down the slopes towards the village of Queenston, and he's going to know that time is running out. His reserve battalion has done all they can do to hold up the other wing of Lee's advancing force from the north, and so those reserves are forced to retire from the field to avoid complete annihilation. If you're Brock, you can't really blame them because they've done all they can do. Now it's time for you to do what you must do to save the day. Norton's Mohawks have made progress on the right, and you have the soldiers' sense that the rest of the enemy line is buckling. They just need that one more push. In this moment, I think Brock does exactly what he did in the historical timeline. He's going to draw his officer's sword, and he's going to lead the final charge up the slopes, cover the final ground separating the lines. It's at this time in the historical timeline that Brock is killed while leading his men back to the Redan on the heights. But in our timeline, the bullet that historically hit his chest well, it strikes his arm instead. But he continues on, as do his men. And the Confederates, they unleash a final volley, and then it's chaos and fixed bayonets. 
and veterans of the fighting on both sides will in later years refer to the mist of blood that hovered over the heights during this melee. In this hand-to-hand combat with the cold steel, I think you've got to give a slight edge to the British. Though the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia was involved in some truly savage close-quarter combat, and you can just think of the mule shul at Spotsylvania and the bloody angle, it was brutal in-your-face fighting that lasted a full day. But the bayonet charge is the shock tactic of the British. In an era when the best soldier could fire just three rounds per minute, when the brown best musket that only had an effective range of 100 yards, well, this is an era where the British are forced to train for this kind of fighting. And it seems to be working atop the heights where the Stonewall Brigade has been reduced from the day's fighting. And we can imagine with the help of historical sources just how brutal this kind of fighting would be. Here's what one Confederate officer wrote about brutal hand-to-hand bayonet combat. He said this, To advance was impossible, to retreat was death, for in the great struggle that raged there, there were a few merely wounded. Clubbed muskets and bayonet thrusts were the mode of fighting for those who had used up their cartridges, and frenzy seemed to possess the yelling demonic hordes on both sides. Here's another account from Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Hyde of the British, who was atop the heights of Queenston on this day. He said this, I never expect to be fully believed when I tell what I saw of the horrors of Queenston Heights, because I should be loath to believe it myself were the case reversed. Their breastworks were of heavy logs and they had traverses, that is, other short breastworks perpendicular to them to protect from a flanking fire. The Confederates were mostly between these traverses, and they laid two, three, and sometimes four tiers deep, the lowest tier nearly covered by blood and water. The wounded were often writhing under two or three of the dead. Nor was the scene where our lads lay less cruel. They were mostly in the open. Many nothing but a lump of meat or a clot of gore where countless bullets from both armies had torn them apart. Back to the battle. Platoons and companies simply evaporate in the storm of steel and musketry. Brock, of course, is leading from the front in his splendid red tunic and his black hat. And he's the perfect target. And at this moment, as the Confederates are simply ground down and overwhelmed, as they begin cracking and falling back down the reverse slope of the gorge, that bullet, that bullet that was destined to hit Brock from the very beginning, the bullet that took him down in the historical timeline, well, it now finds its way back through the chaotic mob, and it takes him in the chest, piercing his lung as it did in real life. Because when you lead from the front, your luck will run out. And for Brock, seemingly in his moment of triumph, he goes down mortally wounded, blood gurgling up his throat. And like the Saxons at Hastings when King Harold is taken down with an arrow through his eye, Brock's redcoats look to their fallen commander and they stall. It's only then that some of them take a look behind and see Lee's secondary wing emerging from the village of Queenston in the rear. And that's when Phobos, the Greek god of fear and panic, grips Brock's men in the moment of triumph. The call sounds out that the general is dead and the Stonewall Brigade's resolve is stiffened. British officers sensing the trap that they are now in 
pinned between these two wings of Lee's army, begin disengaging from the Redan. It's like second bull run all over again. Jackson is the anvil, and Lee is the hammer. The British withdrawal soon becomes a retreat, men running for their lives, fleeing down the slopes, fleeing to the west, away from the heights, away from the village of Queenston. And some don't move fast enough and are caught up in Lee's trap and are forced to surrender. And other units attempt to make a stand and are decimated by Lee's fresh troops. And Jackson's men, on the heights, bloodied and exhausted, well, they pursue as best they can and the rebel yell is echoing off the trees. The final clash of the day takes place. It's a rematch between the Southern Cavalry looking to rip apart the fleeing British infantry and the 19th Light Dragoons, who are fighting desperately to stop the massacre of the fleeing men. In small consolation to the British, the Dragoons stave off the Confederate riders, preventing an even greater massacre. And when the Southern horsemen withdraw, the Dragoons retire as well, providing cover for the retreat. The goal for Lee was always total annihilation of his enemy in every battle. And it's something that he never quite achieved in any of his Civil War era battles. Even in his greatest victories like Fredericksburg and 2nd Manassas and Chancellorsville, the Union Army, though bloodied, they always got away. And history repeats itself at Queenston. Lee's victory against Brock is decisive, but the British do get away, albeit severely wounded. When the casualty figures are compiled, the severity of the day's fighting is evident. Even in victory, Lee's army has suffered 1,250 dead and wounded, with the Stonewall Brigade accounting for 950 of this number, which works out to a staggering 65% casualty rate for this legendary brigade. As horrific as these numbers are, it pales in comparison to Brock's casualty figures. He has 1,500 Redcoats militia and Mohawk dead or wounded. He's got 100 cavalry dead and wounded. He's got 350 missing or captured in Lee's pincer movement. And it works out to a total loss of 1,950 men. When you add it all up, the grand total is over 3,000 casualties. There is, of course, one death which rises in importance above all the rest. And that's General Brock. And when General Brock is found on the battlefield, it is discovered that enemy bullets took him in the wrist, the right leg, the arm, he has got a gray scalp, and the lethal bullet in his lung. The body is given to his second-in-command, General Sheaf, under a flag of truce, and the Confederate gunners give the famed British general a 21-gun salute, just like the Americans did historically in 1812. And thus concludes our what-if, our who-would-win battle. Brock comes very close to victory, but General Lee is going to take the day. The effectiveness of Brock's redcoats and his Mohawk allies, it's quite evident. And in fact, I think they were probably, if we look at individual soldiering skills, probably superior to Lee's men. However, Lee has the tactical genius to win this victory. Brock, he's got the charisma to lead from the front. He's got the bravery to lead from the front. He can inspire his British men to walk through glass and withering storms of gunfire to reach the enemy with the bayonet charge. But on this day, it's not going to be enough. And so in our completely fictional 
Battle of Queenston Heights, Lee versus Brock. Lee walks away with the victory. And with that, I'm going to conclude this episode by dedicating it to all the British veterans who you can still see buried in small rural cemeteries throughout rural Ontario, marked by ancient headstones with inscriptions that are completely weathered, and you can hardly read them actually. But they're there, and they defended this country. Out.